Colossians chapter 3. It starts out like this. If then you have been raised with Christ. If is actually probably the wrong translation of this word. A lot of your other Bibles will translate it since. It's past tense. It's happened. It's chapters one and two. It says this, since then you have been raised with Christ. This phrase right here is the key to unlocking the meaning behind Colossians chapter three. And it might be, I feel very strongly that it might be the key to unlocking the power of the Christian life. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Because here's the thing, at first glance, this chapter is a little bit confusing. And here's why. Paul just spent the last seven verses telling the church, telling us really, to not let overly religious people tell us how to act or to judge us for the things we do or don't do. That's the end of chapter two. And then he's gonna turn around here in chapter three and he's going to tell us what to do and not to do. He's gonna give us 20 do's and don'ts. But what he says here at the beginning is absolutely key. He says this isn't like chapter two. In chapter two, people who didn't understand grace were trying to tell you what you needed to do to earn God's favor. In chapter three, right here with this verse at the beginning, we are told how we are supposed to respond once we understand that God's favor has been freely given. See, here's the thing. You can't earn it, but you do need to act like it. That's chapter three. You can't earn it, but you need to act like it. And chapter three has this pattern to it. The pattern for the first two thirds of this chapter are this. Since, then, because. Multiple times Paul is going to go through and what he's gonna say is he's gonna say, since God did X for you, then you should respond with Y because of Z. Since, then, because. Let me give you a extremely imperfect analogy, but it's uh, a mental picture that's been helping me understand what Paul's trying to say in this chapter. So let's say you're sitting at your house one evening, and all of a sudden there's a knock at the door. You go over, you open the door. My kids love it when I do that. You weren't as impressed, it's okay. <laughs> so you go over and you, you open the door, and there are five people in extremely expensive suits. And they say, uh, Mr. or Mrs., whatever your name is, uh, could we come in and have a moment of your time? We represent the estate of Steve Jobs. We are responsible for his will and testament. We're the executors of Steve Jobs' estate, and we need to talk to you. You know, okay, well, so they come in, they sit down, and they say, well, here's the deal. We've been reading through his will, and it turns out that you are Steve Jobs' long-lost child. And as Steve Jobs' long-lost child, he has named you sole heir of everything he owned and all of his titles at Microsoft. Would that change how you act in the future? Yeah, right? Like, since you are now the CEO of Microsoft, th thank you. All right. Since you are the CEO of Apple, then it might be time to get rid of some of your old clothing because you probably shouldn't wear that T-shirt of the airbrushed wolf like howling at the moon to your first board meeting, right? It's not appropriate. Since you have inherited the entire estate, then you might start shopping for a vacation home in Hawaii because Money is no longer something that affects your decision-making. Since, then, because. Since you're the new face of Apple, I had it right that time. Since you're the new face of Apple, it's probably time to get rid of your Samsung phone because it's not appropriate to your new identity, is it? Now, will getting rid of your T-shirts, trading in your old phone and doing a search for $20 million homes in Hawaii ever allow you to be the CEO of Apple? No. But if you suddenly became the CEO of Apple, 
Those would be your natural responses. And it wouldn't be grievous to you either, would it? It wouldn't be like, oh man, I hate this 10,000 thread count Egyptian cotton t-shirt. I wish my old, you know, I miss my old pit stained Walmart shirt. It's not grievous to you. You would change. You would get rid of some things. You would adopt some new things because the inheritance has given you a new identity. That's what Paul's saying here at the beginning of chapter three. None of the list that's going to follow in chapter three will allow you in any way to earn more favor or love or grace from God. But since we've already been given love and grace and favor from God, then naturally our behaviors and appetites should change because the inheritance that we have been received in Christ has given us a new identity. You can't earn it, but you need to act like it. And just to, just to pull out this illustration just a little bit more, like actually, like once you got over the initial shock of inheriting everything that Steve Jobs owned, you'd have a few questions, wouldn't you? Like, um, so exactly what, uh, what all does that entail? Like, are we, is there a yacht involved, right? Do we have vacation homes? Exactly how much money do I have now? You'd have some questions. What does this mean? These are the questions we should naturally be asking as we start out Colossians chapter three. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. What does that mean? What does that entail? What all is involved in that little statement? And it's one of the reasons why I, I find it so difficult to teach through a chapter of the Bible because on one hand, Colossians 3 is insanely loaded. I could teach six sermons on this. I have six sermons worth of notes, so you know we'll see how we do. But on the other hand, this is a letter, and it was made to be just read from beginning to end in one sitting. Have you ever just read Colossians from beginning to end in one sitting? It takes 12 minutes. Okay, if you're a fast reader, probably 10. If you're slow, probably 15. I'm right in the middle, it took me 12 when I read through the other day and I timed it. Let me challenge you. We have one more chapter in Colossians. For the next week, read Colossians from beginning to end every single day. 15 minutes. You will be blessed and blown away by what you see. Maybe not the first day or the second day or the third day, but man, it really starts to come together as you pour over this and you see what Paul is laying out here from beginning to end because we're picking this up and he's saying, since then you've been raised and he's already told us what we've had. It is, and I have slides on them, it's Colossians 1.13. Here's what he says. He, that's Jesus, pay attention to who does all these things. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We've been forgiven and redeemed. We've got Colossians 2.13. It says this, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. Not only are you forgiven and redeemed, your debts are canceled. Your slate is clean, is what that says. And then finally, Colossians 1.21. It says this, and you and me, who was once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, apparently it's more than just one verse, doing evil deeds, verse 22, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh, by his death in order that Jesus may present you holy and blameless and above reproach. Since you have been raised, you're forgiven and you're redeemed and your debts are canceled and your slate is clean. You are blameless and holy and above reproach. That's who you are, Christian. And because of that, you're going to be given access to an eternity of glory. 
that would make inheriting anything on this earth look like a pittance. Because of this, our future is forever changed. It's full of hope, and it's full of light, and it's full of glory, and greater glory, and greater glory, and there's absolutely nothing we could do to earn it. But, Paul says, we better act like it. We should act like it. And so he goes on with chapter three. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are of earth. Seek and set. Seek it as an action and set your mind, that's a way of thinking. Here's what Paul says. Act and think in heavenly ways. Act in heavenly ways and think on heavenly things. The idea here is super simple. If your future home, and it is, is in heaven, if that's where you're going to spend eternity, then act here like you would act in heaven. Live according to the kingdom and not according to the culture. Will you have lustful thoughts in heaven? No. Then banish them from your mind here on earth. Will you speak negatively about your neighbor in heaven? No. Then don't speak negatively about your neighbor here. But you say, in heaven, my neighbor will be perfect. <laughs> then treat them like they're going to be perfect someday. Simple. In heaven, will we spend time thinking about bigger houses and newer cars and the latest gadgets? No. Then we shouldn't let them dominate our thoughts here. See, in heaven, we will be full of kindness and love and humility. We'll sing praises and we'll fellowship together. So let's do it now. That's what he's saying. Like, this doesn't mean that it's all just religious talk and actions all the time. Like, all we do is sing old hymns and take communion. That's all we do every day. No, feast and celebrate and laugh and explore and gather. And that's what we're going to do in heaven for eternity together. Paul says... Do it now. Seek the things that are above and set your mind on the things that are above because, verse 3 and 4, your life is in Christ and your future is in glory. For you have died, verse 3. You have died. The old you is dead. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. Two things he says, I know, hallelujah. Two things he says here. He says, first off, your life is in Christ. Like we have that saying, don't we? Like, oh, music is her life. Or his job is his life. Or their kids are their life. As a believer, Christ is your life. Right? Christ is your life. I was driving on the parkway the other day. And I saw this younger couple, like probably a little bit younger than me, and nice looking guy and his wife and their young kid, like two years old, and they're standing on the parkway, and they've got this sign out. And it says, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Ask me how. And he's standing there with the Bible. Right? Now, normally I'm not into the sign people, right? Especially the ones outside of the Methodist church on 6th Street. You know what I'm talking about, right? If you don't, then just avoid it. You'll be fine. That was a good sign. And I might not totally agree with the methods, but man, I love the dedication. He's like, it's Saturday, it's hot, but I'm gonna go out and do the thing that I know how to do to bring people, people to the kingdom because my life is in Christ. And it kind of like, his dedication kind of shamed me. I was like, whoa, I mean, what am I headed to go do? I was headed to go enjoy an afternoon with my family. So I thought, okay, we're good. That's a heavenly thing. Like, that's what we're gonna do. But the thing is this, where we spend our time indicates where we've invested our life, right? If his life is music, like oh, music is their life, that means they spend all their time doing music. If Christ is your life, where are you investing your time? Are you investing your time in your life, in what gives you life? Because it says, verse four, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear in glory. We're going to be in glory. 
with Christ someday. Verses 1, 2, 3, and 4 is extremely simple, extremely straightforward, and really it's all we need to learn to walk a great Christian life. Since you've been redeemed by God, then set your mind on heavenly things because that is where you're going to spend eternity. That's it. That's the whole deal. And if we could wrap our heads fully around it, we probably wouldn't need the rest of the chapter. But we do, or at least I do, and Paul knows that, and so here it is for us, because we don't do this perfectly. So he's gonna switch now from the positive, and he's gonna switch to the negative, right? Some things that we might need to, because of our new inheritance, get rid of, because they don't fit with our new identity anymore. He says, put to death, therefore, therefore is key there. It's linking it back to the beginning. It's the same reason. Since you've been raised in Christ, put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual, immor sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Put to death these things. They don't fit with your new identity. Sexual immorality is sex outside of the covenant of marriage with one man and one woman. That's sexual immorality. Impurity is any illicit sexual act. Think pornography. Passion is lust. That's really what he's saying. Put away lust. Evil desire is when we entertain thoughts of doing evil. Okay, that's, that's what James talked about in chapter one when he says each of you is tempted when you're dragged away by your own evil desires and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin when it is full grown gives birth to death. Matt taught a great sermon on this message called Sin Babies, right? That bring you death, but they start with evil desires, mulling things over in your head that are not heavenly. And finally, covetousness, which is idolatry. Just, just let that sink in for a minute, okay? Like in the world where we live in the consumer culture, what we're told over and over and over again is you're supposed to want the things you don't have. In fact, it's taken it a step further and it's like you deserve those things. That's idolatry. Now, is this to say that like wanting a new car or a nicer house or a new pair of jeans is idolatry? Like are we supposed to just be monks, ascetic, like living up in a mountain like mm, so we can't ever have? No. What it's saying is when those things dominate your acts, your actions and your thoughts. Like I don't have time to seek things that are above because I'm setting my mind on wanting that new car. And I'm working extra hours to get that new car. And all my labor is going to get that new car because I am coveting it. And that, the Bible says, is idolatry. And it must be put to death. Not curbed, not slowed down, not relinquished a little bit, not set aside. It must be put to death. That's strong language. And so it bears the question to me, to us, how do we do that? How do we put these things to death? The first two are sexual sins. They're kind of tied together. I think it's very interesting. And I think the key way that we do that is we bring them into the light. I love what Paul does here, and he does it in every single one of his epistles. When you see a list of sins, he doesn't mince words. It's not like, oh, I struggle with impure thoughts. No, you're sexually immoral. Right? That's, he, he just doesn't mix words. He says, bring this into the light. Call it what it is. Because here's the thing about sin, especially sexual sin. It's a lot like vampires. Okay? It wants to suck the life out of you, but it cannot stand the light. It can't stand the light. Years ago, I was in a, a meeting here at church I can't remember what we were doing, and this guy showed up, and we're like, hey, what are you doing here? And he was a couple hours early, and I knew there was a, a, a men's only group that evening, and so I thought that's what he was gonna say, and he's like, I'm here for the pornography group. And I'm like, that guy's gonna get free to this. That guy's gonna get free to this. 
He's not mincing words. He's not trying to cover up his sin or make excuses for the sin. He's like, I need help. I got problems. And I'm coming to the hospital to receive treatment. This doesn't mean we air our sins to everybody we meet. That's not it either. This is saying if you're struggling with something here, find someone, find a group that you can bring these things out into the light. And then second, get radical. Put to death is getting radical, right? It's whatever it is that needs to be, right? You can you cut off the internet, destroy your phone, you know, slash your tires if it's necessary so you don't drive. To, I mean, how did Jesus say it? It's better that you cut off your hand if it causes you to sin. Now, was he being serious? Yeah. I mean, he's not saying really that you should cut off your hand, but he is saying if that caused you to not sin, it is the better option. That's radical. We've got to get radical. But the last three are a little different to me. Evil desires, passion or lust, and covetousness, that's more like a way of thinking, isn't it? That's more sins that happen up here. So how do I put to death sins that happen up here? Because no amount of getting rid of my phone or no amount of cutting off the internet or no amount of any of those is going to happen up here. How do I deal with, with this, which causes a lot of problems? I had a, a youth pastor years ago. He used this illustration. I always liked it. He said this. He said, whenever you're having a struggle, it's like you've got two dogs in your mind or in your body fighting. You've got a good dog, a kind dog, a loving dog. It's the dog of your new self. It wants Philippians 4, 8, right? Whatever is honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and worthy of praise. It wants those things. But the other dog is this big, snarling Rottweiler of a dog. I know you love your Rottweiler, and she's sweet, and it's great, but they scare me. <laughs> it's your flesh, and it wants you to think on lust and evil desires and covetousness, and the question is, which dog is going to win? And the answer is very, very simple. Whichever one you feed. It's whichever one you feed. If you feed one, it grows bigger and bigger and bigger, and it takes a bite out of the other one. And if you're not feeding that one, you're starving it, and it's getting smaller and weaker and weaker. And I think the key to conquering sins of the mind is this. We have to starve them out. We have to starve them out. It is an active, conscious effort to conform our thought lives to our new identities. Active and conscience. The Bible uses this terminology with sin all the time. It says, turn away. And I think that's huge here. It's how we starve the one and feed the other. So you're, you're driving down the street. You see a lady walking on the street. She's not wearing church clothes, okay? And you turn away physically and you put your mind on something else. When I find myself discontented with my stuff or my car or my job, I turn away from that. No, I'm not going to think about that. I'm gonna mentally think about what's waiting for me in heaven. We have to actively and consciously conform the thoughts of our mind to our new identity. We have to starve these things out. That's how we put them to death. Because, verse six says, the wrath of God is coming. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. I think we take the consequences of sin way too lightly. Way too lightly. Part of that is because our Lord is long-suffering, and I am so thankful for that. But we should never use that to, for an excuse to be long-sinning, because sometimes our long-sinning will outrun his long-suffering and he will allow us these horrible consequences because he loves us and he wants to bring us back in. Or God forbid it becomes the end of time. And we've missed it. He says, this is really important. 
because the wrath of God is coming. And then he says this, which I think is so important, verse seven, in these two you once walked when you were living in them. Jesus says this, hey, these things are super bad. Don't do them anymore. Get crazy on them. Put them to death. The wrath of God is coming because of them. But you don't be judgy on other people because you did them too. That's verse seven. Don't get judgy, right? You did all these things too. That's God's job. It just said he would do it. Let him do his job. You do your job. Turn away, concentrate, put your mind on heavenly things, right? God's job, judgment, our job, heavenly mindset, heavenly actions. And then he says, going on, verse eight, but now you must put them all away. Another set, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. For here in the church, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is in all. There's a list of things you've got to put to death and there's a list of things you've got to put off. Don't do these things anymore. Since you've been raised, then put these things away because, Jesus says, there is no determination of peoples in his body. We are all equal at the foot of the cross. Because here's this list. This list is really about how we treat people, how we talk to people, how we act around people. And look at it. What do we have? We have anger. That's hateful thoughts towards someone. We have wrath. That's anger manifest in action. Now, anger and wrath is how you treat an enemy, right? But we don't have enemies in the church. We have brothers because we're all equal at the foot of the cross. If you were given this freely and they were given this freely, then you are equal in the sights of the Lord. You don't have enemies. You have brothers. Put these things off. Malice is desiring evil to happen to someone else. Or, a little bit more subtle, being angry if something good falls on someone. Like, man, why did they get that? I should have had that. Or slander. Slander is talk designed to tear someone down. Now, when do we use malice and slander? It's when we're jealous. That's when we use malice and slander. But why would I be jealous of someone when I have this unbelievable inheritance? What can they possibly have that I need to be jealous of? I've been given everything in Christ. My life is hid in him and my future's in glory. There's no room for jealousy in the church. It makes no sense when you get what Paul is saying here. And finally, obscene talk. Let's just be honest. Obscene talk most often comes out when men are trying to impress other men. Right? And we just... It's not good. It's bad. It's locker room talk, and we're trying to impress our buddies. And then lying. Lying is the same thing, isn't it? It's normally to impress someone. I don't want you to know what I really did. I don't want you to think of me as a sinner. I want to show myself to be something else, so I'm going to lie to you. If our life is hidden in Christ... If all the work was done by him for us and we just get to sit in our living room and have the people walk in and tell us we've received the most unbelievable inheritance in the world, then who do we have to impress? Who do we have to impress? Why can't we just be honest? Why can't we just speak kindly? There's no room for these in the church, Paul says, because we're all equal. You don't have to, enemies. You don't have to be jealous of people. You don't have to impress people. We've all been given the same free gift. And then he says this at the end, Christ is all and in all. The underlying implication of that statement is huge. The person sitting next to you has Christ in them. The kids down there in high school who've given their lives to the Lord, they have Christ in them, right? That person who annoys you, who comes to church, has Christ in them. See, Jesus gives this, this parable, and he talks about a king 
who will gather all of his subjects one day and he'll say, hey, come into my household because when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me a drink of water, right? When I was naked, you clothed me. And then in that parable, he says the religious people will come and be like, Lord, when did we ever, when did we ever feed you or give you water or clothe you? And what does Jesus say? Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Now that's the positive way of looking at it. But isn't the inverse also true? Right, like when an elderly person at church is ignored, Christ is ignored. When a punky teenager is snubbed, Christ is snubbed. When a poor or minority person is treated with contempt, Jesus is treated with contempt. The implication of that statement is, it's mind-blowing to me as I've been marinating over it this week. How I treat people, Jesus says, especially your brothers and sisters in the church, is a direct relation of how you treat me. I view that as a treatment of me. So treat people not the way Christ would treat them. Treat them the way you would treat Christ because that's what it says, right? So now we turn away from the negative and we turn back to the positive, which I'm excited about. Verse 12, he says then, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. He is now going to give us a new sense. For the first portion, we were given this. Since you've been raised in Christ, then do these things because of this. Now we have this. Since you are chosen, holy, and beloved. What an unbelievable list right there. God says you are chosen, holy, and beloved. He chose you. God chose you. When he was hanging on the cross, he chose to die specifically for you. He said, James, I'll take James's sins. Yeah, I'll die for those. And I don't think it was like just throw them on the pile, right? Like I've got, my sister has four kids. I have three kids. Sometimes my wife and I want to go do something. And my sister's like, ah, just bring them over. Right? What's, once you got four, what's three more, right? That's not how this works with the Lord. He died for every one of your sins specifically. They added time and suffering to him on the cross because that's how justice works. And he chose to do that for you. Wow. Wow. And then he says, you're not just chosen, you're holy. I love this quote. I was reading about this and it said this, you're a holy, awful thing. No, not as in awful like bad, awful as in like worthy of awe, full of awe. N.T. Wright said this, I think it's fascinating. He said, if we were to see our resurrected selves, the fulfillment of verse four, that we will be with him in glory, if you saw that, your resurrected self, you would be tempted to worship it. That's the potential contained within each of us that Jesus knows he unlocked when he died for us. That's our potential. You're holy. That's unreal. You're chosen, you're holy, and you're beloved. You're just beloved. Jesus loves you. It's such a simple, deeply profound concept. You are beloved. And as chosen, holy, and beloved people, we are to put on a few things. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. I just like this right here in the middle where he says, if you have a complaint against someone else, it's not a sin. He doesn't say if your brother sins against you. It's like if you have a complaint, if they annoy the snot out of you, forgive them. That's what Paul says. It's not a sin. It's just if you have a complaint, then forgive them because Christ has forgiven you. This list here is all about relationships. It's all about how we treat those around us. And it's really interesting to me what's not on it. 
Fairness doesn't make the list. Compromise. Like a great marriage is compromise. Eh, wrong. A great marriage is service. It doesn't make the list. Right? Mutual beneficial. Trueness to self. Just be true to yourself in your relationships. No, that's not what it says. It says that you are chosen, holy, and beloved, so love sacrificially. Love sacrificially because you've been so filled with love. Right? Because Jesus said, I forgave you. And really what he's saying here is, you should do all these things because I did them all for you. Right? You should be compassionate because Jesus was compassionate with you. I need to be kind because Jesus was kind to me. I need to be patient and forgive and tolerate because that's how Jesus treats me. And the practical implication of this is super simple to me, right? It means this. Whenever I'm struggling to be kind or humble or patient or to forgive, I don't just try harder to do those things. That's not what he's saying. He's saying I remind myself of how much of those undeserved gifts I've already received, right? I meditate I set my mind on how patient God has been with me and it fills up my patience cup so that I can go be patient with others. I concentrate on how kind Jesus has been with me when I was unbelievably undeserving and it fills up my kindness cup and then I can go be kind to others. And ultimately, it says that we are to be forgiving because forgiveness is possibly the most Christ-like thing we can do on this earth to be forgiving, right? Because we are chosen, holy, and beloved people. We are to treat others like they are chosen, holy, beloved people. And then he says this in verse 14 and 15. He says, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. He says, love one another, be at peace with one another, because you have a lot to be thankful for. We have a lot to be thankful for. So we're to love each other, and we're to be at peace with each other. And then he sums the entire, oh. so then we get to verse 16, and he has a switch here, because he says next that there's this other list of things we're supposed to do. And what happens here to me is this. I look at these first 15 verses, and I'm like, that looks a little exhausting. Like, I'm kind of tired just reading it. All right, that's a lot of things to do. I got a lot of things to put off. I got a lot of things to put on. And if we're completely honest, every one of us struggles with at least a couple of these. So we got some work to do. Now, God will empower us to do it, but whew, it's gonna be exhausting. And so Paul says in verse 16, you've got to stop periodically and you've got to get refilled. You've got to get refueled. You've got to get recharged. Here's what he says. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Are you exhausted just hearing the list? You're like, whoa, I don't know if I can even do that. Well, then be refueled by the word of God. And by the teaching of the word, those are different. It's not enough to just come on Wednesday nights and hear the teaching, and it's not enough to just sit at home and read your Bible by yourself, right? He says, be filled by the word and by the teaching of the word and by the wisdom of the saints and by the singing of songs. Just a note, it does not say by the listening to other people singing of songs, right? It says, by the singing of songs. Now, I am a chief offender here, okay? I, my voice, I can talk. I have a speaking voice, right? This does not equate to a singing voice. They're different, okay? And I like to not offend people, so I tend to so sometimes just keep my mouth shut. But I find that when I don't do that, when I truly enter into worship, whether it's a Sunday or a Wednesday, when I actually sing, it's a different experience. And sometimes I think I'm just going to sit there, I'm going to listen. I'm, I'm telling you, it's a different experience. That's why he says, sing. Actually sing. 
And if someone turns around and gives you a bad look next Sunday, be like, James told me to. Okay? And he says, giving thanks in your hearts to God. This is corporate thanksgiving. This is corporate celebration. This is gathering together and talking about the wonderful things that God has done for us. Because as we get into the word and we get around the saints and we sing together and we celebrate, we're reminded of verse one, all we've received when we've been raised. We're reminded of his patience and his kindness and his goodness and we're refilled and we're ready to go out there and do it again. And then in verse 17, he sums it all up. He says this, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord, giving thanks to God, the Father, through him. Whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord. So now, just because we needed a little bit more meat in this chapter, he's going to address the three most common popular relationships that we have, okay? He's going to talk about marriages. He's going to talk about parents and children. He's going to talk about employers and employees. Every one of those should be a full individual message. But instead, we have 13 minutes. So I, I, let's do this, all right? <laughs> Here's what he says about marriages. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. This has for thousands of years been an offensive little set of verses. From the time Paul wrote this, people would get up and walk out of church because of these words right here, because men couldn't stand it. For a thousand years, these verses were offensive to men in the culture. In this culture, your wife was property. She couldn't buy, she couldn't sell, she couldn't divorce you, she wasn't supposed to have an opinion. You were supposed to lord and rule over her. And Paul comes to men and he's like, you need to love your wives. And they're like, excuse me, what? Don't tell me what to do. It was offensive. It's only been in the last 75 years that the offense has switched. Now the wives are there going, excuse me, what? Don't you tell me what to do. It's very interesting. This is kingdom, not culture. It's always offended culture. And I want really quickly to address wives, although mostly I'm going to talk to husbands because I'm a husband and I understand that more. But I want wives to notice what it does not say. Right? It doesn't say be silent. It doesn't say obey. Right? We misquote this all the time. Wives need to obey. It doesn't say that. It's a submit. It's different. It doesn't say you're not supposed to have an opinion. It doesn't say you're supposed to be a doormat. It just says submit. And we don't have time to fully unpack that, but I think the easiest way to read it is respect. Just respect. Just respect your husbands. And then husbands, it says, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. This is, once again, Paul addressing both actions and words, because both actions and words are important. First, he says, love your wives actively. Be attentive to her. Be looking for ways to serve her. Be looking for ways to care for her. Men, actively love your wife. And then secondly, it says, do not be harsh with them. I think it's very, very important, men, whether you've been married for a year or 60 years, that we're careful and guarded and conscious about the way that we talk to our wives. It's really important. Like I drove by this sign that's up at the top end of town at that storage place, and it says this, I don't always wake up grumpy. Sometimes I let her sleep in. It's not funny. It's not. You shouldn't say that to your wife. Right? Even if your wife laughs. Well, I say stuff like that to my wife all the time and she just laughs. Really? What's she supposed to do? <laughs> all right, maybe it's funny. I don't know. <laughs> okay, it's funny. The point is still there, though. We need to be really careful the way we talk to our wives. We need to be really careful because our words have power. I would like to give every husband in here a challenge that I give to newlywed couples. Like, 
Husbands, as we're driving around working during the day, our wives come to mind, don't they? And oftentimes, it's in a good way. We think about you, wives, and we love you, and we think good things about you. It takes 20 seconds to send her a text message to tell her what you just thought about her. Pull over first. (laughs) Do that. I mean, it's so simple to bathe our wives in the water of the word and to not be harsh with them. I think it's really important what Paul says here. Wives submit, husbands love, and do not be harsh. And then he says this to parents and children. He says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. This sums up, this encapsulates every parenting book you've ever read that was written correctly. It says we're supposed to have obedient children and fathers, it says do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. What does that mean? Sometimes it's hard for me to understand what the Bible means. And oftentimes when I do that, I like to look at it in reverse. Okay, if I'm not supposed to do something that makes my kids discouraged, then what I'm supposed to do is be an encourager, right? I'm supposed to encourage. Parenting is this. It is the balance between obedience and encouragement, okay? A house with all obedience and no encouragement is oppressive. A house with all encouragement and no obedience is offensive, right? Your kids are bouncing all over the place. You can't take them out to dinner. They don't, they, they don't right? And the thing is, parents, and I know there's a lot of you out there because they're, they're swarming back there. So unless people are dropping them off and leaving, you're in here. Parents, we are supposed to learn parenting not from some mommy blogger, but from the Lord. And I really think that in possibly Colossians chapter three gives us one of the best outlines for parenting I've ever seen. You can't earn my love. It's freely given. Child, you are chosen and beloved and amazing. You are capable of incredible things. You are destined for incredible things. Now act like it. I encourage and then I expect. Right? Encouragement first and then obedience. And if we can get this balance, I think it's so unbelievably huge. And I want to just say this to parents of young ones, 18 months to maybe three years old, because I have that age. And I learned something from my mother who has been a preschool teacher for 40 years. And she told me this when I first had kids. And it's, it's so true. She says, your kids are capable of and so much more than you think they are. And if you encourage them and expect that of them, they will thrive. Your two-year-old is capable of sitting down at the table and having an entire dinner without screaming or throwing it on the floor. They're capable of it. Will it take a lot of encouragement? Yeah. And some training? Yes. But they're capable of it. You're capable of getting your family to a point where you can go out to dinner and you can enjoy them together. Will it take a lot of encouragement? Yes. But they're capable of it. Child, you're loved. I believe in you but I'm also going to set some expectations because you need to act like it. I think we can do that. And then finally, we're given employees and employers. Verse 22. It actually says bond servants here. Some of your, your Bibles might say slaves. We just need to take this into the 21st century. This is the best relationship we have to this as employees and employers. And here's what it says. Bond servants, obey in everything those who, who are your earthly masters not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, verse 1 of chapter 4, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Employees, do what you're told and do it well. Employers, treat people the way God treats you. 
and don't take advantage of people. It's super simple. But there's one little phrase in here, and I want to close on this because I find it really fascinating. He says this to employees, knowing that from the Lord you will receive your inheritance. I think we always think that God rewards people who have ministry jobs. Like a missionary, all the time they put into being a missionary, God's going to reward that. Or pastors, they're going to get rewarded for the fruits of their labor. They're going to have mansions in heaven. But that's not what this passage says. It says that God rewards any laborer who does their job honestly and heartily. Moms doing your jobs honestly and heartily. Gas station attendants doing your job honestly and heartily pump service guys, pastors, whatever you are, whatever you do, God says do it honestly and heartily as unto the Lord and he will reward you. There's eternal rewards. How does that change your mindset when you're driving to the job site tomorrow? Wait a minute. I'm not just earning that paycheck that you know Biden's gonna take most of. I'm earning eternal rewards. That's an amazing thing. It's such a crazy loaded chapter. We have been given an unbelievable inheritance in the Lord. We have an eternity and glory in heaven. We're chosen, we're holy, we're beloved. And then Paul says, okay, that's who you are. Now act like it, act like it. Is it gonna be hard? Yeah. Are you gonna make mistakes? Yeah. Are you going to get, need to get recharged? Definitely. But Jesus says, son, daughter, child, I believe in you. I'll help you. You can do this. Act like my kid. Act like my chosen. Amen? Father, I thank you. This incredible, incredible chapter. So full. So wonderful. May it pierce our hearts as we leave today. May it challenge us as it's challenged me. Thank you for your word that never returns void. We love you. We thank you that you have chosen us to be your beloved. In Jesus' name, amen.